John chapter 14, just looking at four verses here uh, this morning, I'm sorry, five verses here this morning, and, uh, and we'll see uh, what the Lord says about his peace that he leaves to us, his people. Verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's join together in prayer and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you for, Lord, this, this wonderful truth and this promise you give to us. Lord, we are in a culture that really does long for peace um, and yet has no idea how to find it. So, Lord, we are thankful that if we are tied to Christ, that you have given us not just any peace, not just peace in a general sense, but you've given us your peace. Father, we thank you. As the Prince of Peace, we thank you for giving us your children peace. We pray that our lives would reflect that we have that peace. Lord, that you would apply this word to our heart, that your spirit would work, and we would be strengthened in our walks each day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Once again this morning we come to the last few verses of John chapter 14. And, and remember up to this point Jesus has consoled and he has comforted his disciples by assuring them and promising a number of things as we've uh, looked at I think maybe six sermons now, six or seven sermons in John 14. He's assured them that his going away is going to be for their good, that he's going to uh, prepare a place for them in heaven, and that he has made that way, I'm the way, place possible uh, through his saving work. He has told them that go, his going away, it's not the end of the story. He's still going to work. He's promised, in fact, to return to them, to work in and through them, through the works he has done in his earthly ministry. He assured them that their obedience to him as being the fruit of their love to him would be a witness to the world of his love for them. And he promised that he would answer their prayers. He promised that he wouldn't leave them as orphans. He promised that his going away would result in the coming of the Holy Spirit who would be their helper in even greater ways than they had ever known before. He had promised them by the same power of that Holy Spirit, the power of that same Holy Spirit, that they would remember the things that he, Jesus, had said and done so they'd be able to commit those things to God's people for generations to come by writing them in his word. So indeed, Jesus has, has promised them a lot of really wonderful things. He shared a lot of great promises to comfort his disciples. Well, now as he, he really gets ready to head to the cross, to head back to heaven, he has one more thing that he promises to leave them behind. Just as people make a point to ensure that their wills are in order as they approach death, so Jesus makes it a point to set things in order as he heads to the grave. 
And it's something that is of great need and immeasurable value. He promises that he is going to leave them with his peace. He said it in these words in, in verse 27 that we read now. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He says, my peace I leave with you. This is something that, that Jesus is leaving behind for them as a gift. It's his to give, by the way. We know that, don't we? Because as Isaiah tells us, we already prayed, he is the Prince of Peace. And so it follows that as the Prince of Peace, he's able to give peace to whomever he wills. This is not peace, once again, in a, in a general sense. It is his peace. Well, in light of this being his peace, I want us to ask the question, first of all, what kind of peace is it? What, what is it about this peace that's so special? What kind of peace is it that Jesus gives to his people? The first thing I want to look at about this piece is this piece really at its core has two aspects to it. We can put it like this. Jesus gives us both peace with God and also the peace of God. Jesus gives us peace with God. That's really an objective truth and it leads to the subjective peace of God. See, when we understand that first he, he gives us peace with, with God, we've got we to first of all understand our condition. We need to understand the condition in which we are born. All of us are born into this world at absolute war with God. We are born haters and enemies of God. Our wills, our affections are bent from birth towards sin and away from God. And as a result of that, our, our, our consciences are never at peace and never at ease because we know that there's a God, according to Romans 1, and we know about this God, that there's a way which that God would desire for us to live. And yet the thing that really causes the unrest in all of us is that we have no desire to acknowledge Him. We have no desire to live by that law that He has revealed. Our, our troubled consciences then will lead to every relationship we have being troubled. And then on and on this goes in an endless cycle until you have societies very much like the one we have today. So, so peace in its truest form, it's a foreign concept to the man, woman, or child outside of Christ. However, those who've been given the grace of God to, to call on Jesus for salvation, they are the ones who get to know, experience, and enjoy and receive this peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul puts it for us in Romans 5.1. This is a very important verse. If you haven't ever marked this in your Bible, do that. He is, he is speaking about all those who are wrapped up in Christ. And look what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we, being the people of God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Friends, once we come to Christ by faith, it is then and only then we experience and enjoy this peace with God. It is then we experience the blessings of what it means to be brought back, to be reconciled to God. See, while we were outside of Christ, God's face was turned away from us. So, so long as his face is turned away from us, we live a life of continued sin and misery. That's a terrible place to be. But when we are brought to Christ, the war between us and God is brought to an end. And instead of being strangers and enemies, God turns his face toward us to bring us into his family so that we not just be considered friends of God, but heirs of God, his very own children. So we objectively experience peace with God. And the only reason we objectively experience peace with God is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more to this peace that Jesus gives. Not only do we enjoy the objective reality of being at peace with God, but, but being at peace with God will then bear the wonderful fruit of enjoying the peace of God. And those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ in an experiential way, you've seen just how phenomenal this gift is. If you are at peace with God, then you have also enjoyed the peace of God. If you have the peace of God, then you basically have a key element to joy and contentment in this life. This is what peace of God brings. It brings peace despite circumstances. You see, when you get bad news from the doctor, when you get a pink slip from that employer, when your husband or wife tells you they no longer love you and they want to leave you, or when that young woman or guy lets you down by letting you know that they're not interested, or when you don't get into the school you've got your heart set on, or when your favorite political does, politician doesn't get elected, when your government begins to crumble, when your, your society begins to corrupt morally, when any of these things happen in life around you, if you are at peace with God, then you can experience the peace of God no matter what's going on around you. That's the key element of the Christian life. No matter what your circumstances might be, if you know the peace with God, if you're at peace with God and know the peace of God, you can stand firm in the midst of the storm throughout all the circumstances of those changing things. Do you ever wonder how it is that Christians in the worst situations in third world countries or Christians who, are, who live at places where they have targets on their backs for being Christians, how it is these same people oftentimes exude a sense of peace and tranquility despite their terrible circumstances? I mean, if you've ever been on a mission trip in a third world country and you've celebrated and rejoiced with brothers and sisters in Christ, you know that their peace doesn't come from the amount of stuff they have or the amount of money they have in their bank accounts or the size of their house. You know that. You see that. It's not contingent upon circumstances. Those who have peace with God can have the peace of God despite their circumstances because those who know that they are at peace with God also know that God is completely in control of all things. He's in, he owns the circumstances. They, they know that their father, even in those circumstances, always has their best interest in mind and he's always working all things together for their good. See, when a Christian finds itself in, in the midst of a stormy trials of life, he knows that all his Savior has to say in that moment is, peace be still. 
You think about that. We saw that in the gospel accounts, didn't we? Storms are raging. Boats are about to flip over. Jesus just says the word, peace be still. Reminds us that our God is in control. That is why our eyes, our hearts, and everything about us have to be focused upon him. It's very important that we do this. See, when the Christian begins to get troubled or, or anxious, which is something I think we struggle with more and more in our society today. When we begin to get troubled, we get anxious, we worry, things shake up. Whenever you find that happening in your life, just remember, all we have to do is pray in the manner that the Apostle Paul instructs us to pray in Philippians 4. You remember that wonderful verse that's there? Listen to what he says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, Be anxious for... Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result of that? The result of that, he says, is, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your, mind, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. By committing our circumstances to God in prayer, we can have confidence. We can know that we are in good hands. And it's then that we experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The peace that we just, we can't really explain because it doesn't really quite make sense to the world outside of us. It's that peace that God gives for the purpose of guarding our hearts and minds from being overly anxious and troubled by the circumstances of our lives. And it's for these reasons that Jesus can say, once again, as he did at the outset of this chapter, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. See, this all works together. If we are at peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have the peace of God despite our circumstances, then there is no reason for us ever to be fearful or for us ever to have troubled hearts because if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God loves us, then we know, according to Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate his love from us. It's also worth noting that if we have this peace then it ought to bring something forth in the people of God. We ought to be a people of God who have a heart and mind to secondly, pursue this peace and preserve it within the church. That's the second thing we learn about this. By, by Jesus giving us his peace, he gives us something, a peace to pursue and preserve. It's the second thing we see here. What kind of peace is this? It's a peace to pursue and preserve. If you've received and know this peace, then one of the evidences of fruit of that is that you will, you will experience it yourself. You will seek it, pursue it, go after it yourself. You will want to have it manifested within the walls of our church. Brother Bert read from, from Psalm 122, and I love this psalm. I want to just spend a couple moments thinking about this text. Psalm 122, 6 through 9, the second half, it says this. This is David saying, he says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will say now, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. 
Church family, the children of God are filled with the peace of Christ. Therefore, we ought to strive to see peace within the church. And I'll tell you something. Anytime you see somebody actively engaging in disruption and dissension within the church, it's oftentimes a fruit that they are not at peace with God. It's an outcry because if they, if they focus on the external things, the things that don't really matter and can cause a fuss and a stink about those things, then when they lay their head down at night, they really don't really have to think in their minds as much about how they're not really at peace with God. This is what works-based faith presents. Anytime your faith is based on anything other than Jesus Christ, you are not at peace with God and you will be seeking to find peace by war. That's not the child of God though. So long as we live on this side of glory, there will always be more peace to be sought after and gained within the church of Christ, sure. But David commands us here to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He's not talking about physical Jerusalem here. It's the very thing that he goes on to do in the next couple of verses. David prays for peace within the kingdom of God. Three times we see that word peace in these verses. And three times we see the reference to the location of that peace being where? Being within He's speaking of the church of God's people and as a member of Christ's church, friends, you and I are to desire, promote, and enjoy peace. I want to give you a practical way by which we do that. We already talked about this a little bit in Philippians 4, but one of the ways we do this is through prayer as the people of God. We ought to be continually praying for peace within our congregation. As a congregation, we ought to be praying for peace within our denomination. As one denomination among many, we ought to be praying for peace for the churches across the globe. As God's people, we must be careful. We're not causing unnecessary disruptions to the peace within a congregation or denomination. Let us be on our guard against strife and divisions within Christ's body. Friends, at the end of, of that psalm, he reminds us, the last verse says, I will seek your good. And I love this because David's not willing just to stop and say, I'm going to pray for peace. He's actively thinking about engaging into it. He's actively considering, how can I really go after this peace? He's willing to actively seek your good. He's willing to make it a personal effort on his part. He doesn't want to just talk about it. So it should be for each one of us to set out and purpose ourselves to seek the good of the church. One pastor put it this way. He said, I will throw my energies into it. My powers, my faculties, my property, my time, my influence, my connections, my family, my house. All that I have under my command shall, as far as I have power to command, and as far as God gives me ability to turn them to such a use, be employed in an effort to promote the interest of Zion, the church. Would that all of us seek the good of God's church all of our lives? Just ask ourselves a couple questions. I want you to think about this. Am I willing to pray for the peace and prosperity of the church? How can I further show my love and support for the church? Do I prefer the peace of the church at the cost of my preferences and desires? Friends, as often as we see the imperfections of the church, and it's imperfect, 
May we ever be mindful to pray for her. To be mindful that he who began a good work in her will complete it at the day of salvation, according to the Apostle Paul and the Word of God. Getting back to our text in John, this piece, uh, another thing we see, what kind of piece is this? Well, this is, this is a piece that is otherworldly. This is a piece that is not like the world gives. That's the third thing we see about what kind of peace this is. John says, this is the peace not of this world. See, the world promises peace, don't they? But the world has no power or ability to make good on that promise. You see, death and eternity always reveal the truth about the world's promises of peace. Because whatever they are, and whatever they're promising, it's not of lasting value. It ends. Even if you have some sense of it, in whatever way you want to define that, peace comes to a screeching halt the moment one dies and enters into eternity. And it's frankly, it's very sad that many people are duped into thinking that they know true peace and that it will last forever for them. That's so much of what the spiritism of our day preaches and promises. All of this talk about finding your inner peace and things like this, it's the talk of the day, isn't it? Folks, the day will come when, when those who think they have known peace will finally realize they've been ripped off. It's a counterfeit peace. That's all they have. Not the real thing. Now, the world might be able to medicate you in such a way that you begin to forget about your troubles. You might even have in your own worldly way a, a way of self-medicating some sense of peace for yourself. But the day will come when those things will come to an end and each of us will stand before God Almighty and either sink or swim. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ to know and experience the true peace of God, then you are going to be in great trouble on that very sobering day. Friends, do you have the gift of peace that Jesus gives? Do you have his peace? Do you have true peace? If your conscience is at peace, truly at peace with where you are in your life, are you able to sleep at night with assurance that you are at peace with God? If not, friends, all you have to do is cry out to God in faith. All you have to do is look to Christ and confess that he is the Lord and Savior of mankind. And he is faithful and merciful enough to you to grant you his peace. Let's move on here to verse 28. The rest of this sermon is very short because I wanted to spend a lot of time on verse 27. I think it's the bulk and main idea of this text. Verse 28 says, You heard, Jesus said, that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. The Father is greater than I. Well, here Jesus tells them something that's kind of peculiar, isn't it? Jesus says if, 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 you, if they loved him, if they had a right understanding or of the current situation, they would rejoice about his going away. Now, please note that Jesus isn't just accusing them of not loving him or not having love for him. That's not the point of what he says here. He knew that they loved him. In fact, the fact that they are so distraught over, over his going away even shows how much they loved him. Nevertheless, Jesus gives them two reasons as to why they should rejoice over going, his going away. Why would they rejoice over his going away? Number one, they should rejoice because it's better for Jesus. The reason they should rejoice for Jesus' going away is because it's actually better for Jesus. Think about that for just a moment with me. Think about the life of Christ while he lived on earth. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
rejected by men. He had no place to lay his head down. He was betrayed by those who claimed to be his friends. He suffered great insults and ridicule from his very own people. There could be no doubt that when you looked at the life of Jesus in that light, that it was better for Jesus to go home. Anybody who loved Jesus would want him to be at home. And friends, it's actually the same thing that is true for a child of God that goes to the grave. Any saint that that goes to the grave, if they are in Christ, they go to a better place. It's very sad for those who are left behind. It's not sinful to grieve those who we miss and love. But there's also a sense in which we can rejoice with the saints who pass. The Lord himself says that the death of his saints is precious in his eyes. When believers die, they are going home to a mansion that Jesus himself has prepared for them. There should be a part in all of us that has some sort of sense of a great longing to be there. I really do trust that the the older you get and the more time you spend on this side of glory, the more you have an increase of a desire for that side of heaven. The more you have a longing for where Jesus with the faithful saints who have gone before us reside. So if if there's something that's true about us there, if true saints do have a desire to go be with Jesus in heaven, how much more true would it be of the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, heaven is his eternal home. It's not like Jesus is going there for the first time. It's not like Jesus has any worry about what heaven's going to be like. Is it really going to be worth it? No. He left that place to come and do this marvelous work, which he did, which involved some very terrible things. Surely he had a desire to go home. So not only should they rejoice because it was better for Jesus, but secondly, they should have rejoiced because it was better for everybody. (laughs) This should be simple, right? The reason that they should rejoice that Jesus is going away is because if you think about it, it's better for everybody that Jesus is going away. After all, it was only by his going away and finishing the work which he had, that the Father had given him to do that he could ensure the salvation of his people. If Jesus had not gone, then there would be no salvation for any of us. So it's certainly better in that sense that, that Jesus go. I want to wrap this up quickly in verses 29 through 31 as we just read and consider some thoughts. I was considering putting some, some notes together of all the stuff that I've cut out because some of these things are really, really deep things. You've got that text in there where it says the, great, the Father is greater than I. That's not talking about uh, the essence of the Trinity. It's talking about the economy and the function of the Trinity, but we really don't have time for that this morning. I want to read, though, verses 29 through 31 and uh, give you some final thoughts, really about 31. Let's look at the text here. It says, Now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. I love that, by the way. Jesus just said, the devil has nothing on me. I love that, by the way. Uh, Verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. I want to simply point out the idea that Jesus tells us that the work which he came to do was the work that the Father had commanded him to do. The reason he followed through in doing that work is, as we see in the text, is because he loved the Father and he wants the world to know that he loved the Father. 
We're really going to talk about this idea more on chapter 17, but I want to give you a tease about what this is. I want to point out for you that what we have here is the basic content for what theologians refer to as the Council of Peace or the Covenant of Redemption. Those are two synonymous things they refer to this as. And just, I want you to be thinking about that. Write that down if you can, because we're going to see this a lot in John 17. The Council of Peace or the Covenant of Redemption. You don't hear it mentioned very often, but the part it plays in our overall salvation is critical, and we need to have at least an understanding of it. It's from texts like these that we're given the insight to the fact that there was a covenant among the Godhead in eternity past. Before the world was ever created, we don't know exactly when, we just know before the world was created, the Father made a covenant with the Son with the purpose of redeeming a people for Himself. The Father agreed that He would send the Son and uphold Him in His work. The Son agreed that He would live a perfect life of obedience as well as offer Himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of His people. The Holy Spirit, of course, would have a role in applying that redemption to His people. Now, why is that so important? Friends, the reason that covenant is so important is it comes down to the fact that it's the basis, it's the foundation for our covenant of grace that we're living in right now if you're a believer of Christ. See, when God established His covenant of grace with men on earth, it was really just the outworking of the covenant He had already made beforehand with the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus can say that he did what the Father commanded him to do and why he can say further when we get to chapter 17, Father, I have finished the work you have given me to do. Before he even came to earth, there was something that God told him he must do. And that's the counsel of peace, the covenant of redemption. I just want to put that in your minds as we move along in in John. But as we conclude and think about what that means... I want us to consider just for a moment what our Savior did for us in volunteering to become a man and to redeem sinful people. See, it's amazing to consider the fact that Jesus knew exactly what he was getting himself into when he entered into that covenant with the Father. There were no surprises for Jesus. In fact, Jesus is God. He's always been God. He knew that he was entering into this exact way when he entered in that covenant with the Father. He knew all that was going to go down. One pastor, uh, when preaching about this idea, he said this. And I want to share these words to you from a sermon. He says, sometimes facing a hard task is made easy because you don't know exactly how awful it will be. He said, I recently read a story of a group of prisoners who escaped a gulag in Russia. They literally walked all the way to India. And the worst part of their journey was walking through the Gobi Desert without food or anything to carry water with. The writer himself confessed that had he known how terrible their journey through the Gobi would be, he never would have begun it. And then he ties it to what Jesus did for us. He said, Jesus is about to do something that made walking through the Gobi Desert seem like a walk in the park. Because he's the son of God, he knew exactly how awful it would be. So we see him then sweating blood in his prayers in the garden, even crying out in Luke twenty-two forty-two, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, because of his great love for the Father and the covenant he held with him before creation, immediately after that he says, yet not my will but yours be done. Friends, I can only hope and pray 
that you and I have been impressed to some degree, however small or great, with the great love that Jesus has for the Father and for his children. Jesus knew exactly how awful his journey back to heaven would be. And yet he did it anyway. From what we learn from the writer of Hebrews, it's all the more amazing because we're told that the reason he did that it was, it was before the joy set before him that he endured the cross. What an amazing thing that is, that he can look at something so terrible and awful and yet even through it see the joy at the end. It's because he's the Prince of Peace. I pray that you have that peace of Christ, that, that joy that in Jesus' mind says it was well worth it in my eyes. And friends, if Jesus says that the cross is well worth it and that that it was the joy that set before him that led it there. If that doesn't melt your heart and drop you to your knees in worship, then I'm not exactly sure what it will take. The king of kings went willingly knowing all that would entail this terrible journey for the joy set before him. We have a loving savior who has gone to the cross, to the grave, suffered the wrath of the father for you if you belong to him. That's something for us to contemplate and think about day in and day out. I pray that God would grant us grace to be encouraged by these things. I pray that we'd be a people of peace. And we'd understand exactly how deep the Father's love is for us. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, what a tremendous word of encouragement you've given us here this morning. Lord, I, just, I know that there are people in this congregation... Um, who are just wrestling with the peace of God. Father, they, they know that they have peace with God. For they're struggling having the peace of God that comes as fruit. Lord, would you just continually remind them of the gospel. And how you've so taken care of them and love and giving them your peace that it's attainable. For us, despite our circumstances, we can, we can have peace. And, and what a testimony that is to the world, Lord. As we've seen already, that love for the church and the testimony it is to the world. Lord, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is a testimony to the world. That, that you are alive and you are at work in the lives of your people. Father, I pray for those Christians here who just may need some prayer and may have a longing of the peace of God. Father, for the ones who are not Christians here, who know that internally they are at war with God because they are not at peace with God, Father, I pray that they would see what it took for Jesus to go to the cross, that he knew exactly what he was getting into, holding to his covenant of redemption, the counsel of peace, that, Lord, the sins of the world were laid on him, so that they could have peace. I want to pray for those people who don't know you and are looking for peace everywhere. Lord, would you just remind them that they don't have it. The peace they have is counterfeit if it's the world's. The true and lasting peace only comes from knowing you as Lord. Lord, I love you and I thank you for your wonderful word. Lord, as we respond in the song of worship... May our hearts be encouraged and enlightened as we sing of you in your glorious grace. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.